want to start off this morning uh, by asking you guys a question. Even before we get into announcements, I want this to be the first thing that's on our minds. Okay, and we're going to we'll do something that's pretty awkward for everybody, and we're going to let you guys sit in silence for about, uh, I'm going to be able to do 30 seconds, okay? Um, I just want to start off with one question. I want you to think about it for 30 seconds, and it's, um, do you love God? Okay? Do you love God? So let's think about that for 30 seconds, and then I'll bring us back in. Okay, John 14 tells us that to love God is to obey God. Okay. It says, he who has my commands and obeys me, he is the one, she is the one who loves me. Okay, John 14, he who has my commands and obeys me is the one who loves me. So I want to give us another 30 seconds and ask you the same question. Do you love God? I'm asking myself the same question, so let's do that for 30 seconds. Okay, the reason why I want to start there this morning. I asked myself that question this week, every morning, every day this week, because I was convicted by a lot of the stuff that we're studying here in the Sermon on the Mount. I was convicted by this reality, right? Because as I look at John 14, it says, man, he who has, uh, has the commands of God, right? And I'm like, well, I've got those, right? I, I've read the scripture. Uh, I believe the Holy Spirit has illuminated scripture. I'm, I'm in community. People tell me what, what the Bible says and what it doesn't say and how my life is supposed to be lived out and what love looks like and, and this, that, and the other. And so um, I, I think I have the commands of God. And so then the second part, right, B, to that equation is, well, do I do them, right? So if I have the commands and I do them, that is what equates my love for God. And so then I began to go through all these commands and think to myself, well, do I do this and do I do this and do I obey these things? And I tell you, the assurance that I had in having the commands of God um, was not equal to my assurance of whether or not I do them. And that, uh, that is a disconnect within my own faith and my own walk with Christ uh, that, that isn't okay. Now, the reality is of the Christian life is that these things will probably never be equal, that we're always going to fail, and we've talked about this in length over and over and over, and that's the good news of the gospel. Right? So the gospel comes in and says, listen, I know you're going to fail, so I lived the life you could live. Thank you, Jesus. But the desire for the Christian needs to be at all times that at some point we would strive for them to be equal. That that which we know to be true and that which we actually live out would be the same thing. Even though we may never get there, this side of heaven, the desire for the Christian man or the Christian woman must be a desire to see those two things be equal. Can we agree on that? If so, come on, say amen. Some of you are wishing that wasn't true, but you know the Bible says that's the way it should be. So again, amen, yes? 
So what we'll look at today is we're in week three of the Sermon on the Mount series, which, again, as we've been saying, is, I think, the, the manifesto, the constitution, it is the ethic of the kingdom of God, and so should so shape the Christian man and the Christian woman in everything that we feel, that we think, and that we do. And so this becomes an incredible opportunity over, we've been going for three weeks, we've got nine weeks after this, to be a litmus test and where do we line up in this John 14 idea of do we truly love God if loving God equals obeying what God has so called us to? Okay. And so I start us off with that question because at least here's what I'd like to do. Today's not going to be an easy day and last week wasn't an easy day and I get done with these type of sermons and honestly I just feel this weight of like, gosh, I just hope people aren't upset Right? I hope people are mad that, the, that, that you know, we're coming down pretty hard, but then I go back and I read scripture and I say, well, what else are we supposed to do with this? Because I think we're supposed to feel the same uncomfortability that I think the people, the disciples who wanted to follow Christ early on here, that they felt. And then I think oftentimes we feel not that. Right? Maybe we feel more like the outskirts of the crowd who's kind of listening in and it's going to pick and choose which parts of Christ's message we choose to obey. Right? We're like, ah, we're going to be over here, we'll let the, the real disciples go do this stuff, but I'm going to kind of live on this edge here and kind of listen in and then maybe I'll engage in a moment, but then when I don't like it, I can step back out. And that is not an option for the Christian. In the midst of the gospel, which frees us, that's not an option for the Christian man or the Christian woman. And so again, if you're upset at the end of this, take it up with Jesus. Okay. And I mean that. I had a, uh, a girl that I, I dated in college, and uh, she had this problem with her car, right? And she said, hey, will you go with me to the mechanic? Because I, I want to see what's wrong with it. And it was leaking oil, it was making funny sounds, lights were on everywhere, that type of thing. And so we go to the mechanic, and he looks at the car, and he says, yeah, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong, and, and you need to get it fixed, or this whole thing is going to go bad. I'm just telling you right now that if you don't fix this, it's going to go bad, right? The car is going to seize up. It won't be good. And so we leave the place, and I ask her, I said, well, are you going to pay to get the stuff done? And she says, oh, no, I'm not going to do it. I said, well, did you not just hear what he said? He just said, if you don't do this, uh, that the engine's going to seize, you're not going to have a car, it's not going to be functional, it's all going to be broken, you're going to be upset. He says, yeah, but I got a buddy. I said, oh, you all, there's always a buddy, right, who knows better than the professional. And I said, well, what does your buddy know? He says, well, my buddy, he did, like, shop in high school. I said, he did shop in high school. That's like this equivalent of Finley, my son, like, working on his toy car at my house, right? He says, oh, he says they're just trying to take me for money. He looked at it. He thinks it's fine. So I'm just going to keep going. I said, you're crazy. We're breaking up. And then... So we, we continue on, I kid you not, within a week, her engine seizes up, the motor dies, and the car is just one giant heaping piece of metal, right? And who is she mad at? Who do you think she's mad at? She's mad at me! And she's mad at the mechanic! And she's mad at her friend! You know who she's not mad at is herself! And then legitimately, we did break up like a week later. This started a huge fight between us. We are terrible at taking responsibility for our own inaction. It does not matter how loud the Bible preaches. It does not matter often how much Jesus repeats himself throughout this sermon and throughout scripture. We will choose to do 
whatever sounds best to us. We are really good at inaction. And again, that is not okay for the Christian man and the Christian woman. You see, when we're confronted, I think, with these things, we, we do have a choice. And, and I'm asking you to somewhat make a choice now, right, before we even delve into some of the hard stuff of today. And really, like, guys, for the next nine weeks, all he does is go deeper and deeper and deeper into the distinctiveness of the people of God and the holiness of the people of God. And so I'm asking you, where do you want to line up? Do we want to continue to kind of fall into this inaction where we just assume even though the world is groaning, right? Even though we see pain and hardship and hurting people all around us, and we know, we think at least the Bible would point to that the answer to that hurting and tribulation and problem would be Jesus, would be the gospel ultimately, that instead we can, we'll remain in inaction instead of engaging the culture with the answer. May it not be for us, right? And so I'm asking you right up front, which... And where do you want to find yourself? So last week, we, we talked about how God was conforming our identity, right? He was telling us, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Okay, if you didn't have an opportunity to listen to that, I pray you go back and listen because it really shapes us. So if we don't get identity, I don't think we get desire, which is what is today. So, so, so Christ conforming our identity to the identity of Jesus, salt and light to the world, and then today, the desires of our hearts, the desires of our minds, that which we want to go and do with our lives is addressed today. And it all starts in eternally, okay? Um, before we jump into the text, the last couple points. Up to this point, Jesus has not mentioned the law. Now, this is a big deal, right? Because Jesus was a rabbi, right? He was a great teacher amongst the Jewish people. And so they would have immediately thought, okay, what he would do was espouse his beliefs about the law and the Torah of God. And so he doesn't do that yet. This passage today will be the first opportunity we see Jesus address the law. Now, this would have been confusing for many who were going to be disciples of Jesus. Why has he not brought the law up yet? And I wonder, I just wonder, if what they struggled with is the same thing we struggle with, and it is a desire to never have rules put over us. Like, I, I wonder if the disciples were like, man, I'm going to follow this rabbi because he hasn't started laying on the rules yet. He's all about, it seems, freedom and love, and this is fantastic, and so you're my guy. And then today he's going to bring up law, and I just wonder what their response will be, and I wonder what our response will be when we're confronted with the reality of, no, there's ways that this is supposed to be lived out. Now, many of you are college students, and I remember being a college student. I remember coming to campus, and, and literally I try and go on campus once or twice during the first week of school while you guys are all getting settled and just kind of pray and, and walk around and pray for people and, and, and just kind of see the campus. And I, and I saw this one guy get dropped off the weekend before school started by his parents. And he gets out of his car and he walks up and the parents leave. He does his little platitude, says goodbye, kisses, honey, you're amazing, you're the best, you're never going to do anything wrong, that type of thing. Uh, and then he walks away and as soon as they're gone, he yells an expletive, which is not safe for here, um, and then says, Freedom! I'm serious, this is not a joke. And then does one of those silly chest bump things with his friends. So I was like, don't be friends with that guy, right? Immediately, here's what I realized, and immediately is where my mind went. We do not like to have authority ever. 
And so the first moment that an 18-year-old gets to be outside of that authority, right, where, where their character is actually for the first time, I would say, truly tested, because you don't have your parents coming into your room at night, giving you a curfew, doing all for the first time in life. And I think most of us trend towards freedom. I can now do whatever I want to do. And I would just say this, if you're here and you're a Christian, that does not exist. There is always an authority. It's just even higher than your parents. And it's way higher than me. So don't hear anything I'm saying today as well, you know, Pastor Vince said, no, no, no. What does Christ say about your life today? And what does Christ say about its purpose and its desire? Okay, so here we go. Uh, verse 17. Let's get going. <clears throat> Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Okay, so um, what is Jesus talking about here? And, and I started prepping this whole thing for you guys and, um, and talking about law and trying to break this all down. And then we came across this video, which is about three and a half minutes long. And it has pictures, which I think you're better at. Um, and so we're going to watch this video uh, for three and a half minutes. And honestly, it will substitute about 10 minutes of hearing me ramble about the law. And so let's watch this, and I'll come in and, and color it for us. So let's do that now. We're going to need sound, I think. Can we start it over? Love you. And let's take that down. There we go.
Let's give it up for the Bible Project guys and making that video. That's pretty sweet. They'll never know we clap for them, but we're good. Okay, does everyone understand that now? Anyone, everyone get the law now 100%? Here's the idea, right? So the law is often just thought through. It's, I mean, it's all these commands, right? 613 commands in the Old Testament. And the, and the Old Testament uh, Israelite people had to abide by every single one of these to be made holy, right? Until, right, there was given other options for how Christ might atone for the sins of the people of God in the Old Testament. Sacrifice, ceremonial cleansings, uh, and moral law all kind of came into this whole idea of what the law and the prophets were talking about. But I think a part that we often miss that I love that they hit on is that ultimately this is a story. Right? It's not just this set of commands. I think we often think through the Old Testament law. I think we often even think through our lives today through this lens of a checklist, right? So Jesus said, well, we'll do these things. Or in the Old Testament, right, Yahweh, God has said these things. And so if we can check the things off a list, then we're good to go, right? Like if, if we can just do everything on the list, then God will find favor and we're okay. But it is far more than that. It's this incredible story of what God is writing throughout history that now you and I find ourselves playing a part in. That everything that's happened before, everything that we just saw in that video, that is all part of the heritage of the world, the true story of the world. Whether people believe it or not, that this has been God's continued interaction with the people in this world from the beginning of time until now. Now, Jesus comes on the scene. And again, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking the, the disciples here are hoping and just praying because the law had not only become difficult because it already was, it had become oppressive because the Pharisees, who were the legalists of the time, the very holy people of the time here, uh, as, as we look here in the Gospel of Matthew, they had then taken those laws and made them oppressive and made them uh, over the top in order to suffice themselves in their own personal gains. And so the law already difficult was made that much more difficult because then they were, found themselves, they were finding themselves even more oppressed than ever before. And so I think the disciples were probably much like us, probably, honestly, much like Adam and Eve in the garden. This disobedient thing is not a new thing for humanity. It was the one thing we screwed up in the garden. It was, hey, there's one thing you're not supposed to do, and so what do they do? They do it. One thing. God comes in and says, hey, what happened? I gave you one command. And then he's like, well, she did it, right? Thanks a lot, husband. And the rest of the story of God continues as us striving to get back to him. When in reality, it's always been God pursuing us. At the minute this thing was lost, God initiated a rescue plan to come back and win back his lost creation. The law is part of that. So when Jesus now comes on the scene, I think the disciples are hoping the law will go away, but instead he says just the opposite. I'll read it again. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. And so the law is going nowhere initially, right? As we look at this, the law is going nowhere. Christ is not getting rid of the law. Now, I want us to think through the laws of our nation. Okay, so uh, just think of some of the most easy ones, like speeding, right? Um, why do you and I generally obey laws, if we're honest? We don't want to get in trouble. Perfect. Whoever said that? Extra jewels in your crown, okay? 
If you're not a Christian, that sounds like a weird joke. Okay? You're like, they give out crowns. Um, Bible jokes are the worst. I'm not going to make another one. I'm sorry. Because we don't want to get in trouble. Right? It's not that we actually think that not speeding is a good thing. Uh, it's not that we think that all of the other laws of our land are not good. It's that we don't want to get in trouble. And so I guess, oh, I guess I'll do that because, well, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to get caught. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to pay a fine. I don't want to have to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is a terrible reason to obey a law. But I think we carry in that cultural mindset to the laws of God or the commands of God, the ones that in John 14 says that if you love me and have these commands, then you'll obey me. I think what we do is we lay that type of rubric and say, well, I just don't want to get in trouble, so I guess I'll white-knuckle my way through trying to be the best possible Christian I can be. That is a terrible reason to obey the law. Terrible. What if, what if Christians, what if we actually believed that what the Bible talked about was truly the best way to live life? Like, what, what would that do for us individually and for us corporately if when we read through this thing, as you did your quiet times, as you sat in Bible studies, as you prayed, as you talked to people, as you sat here, if you actually believe that what the Bible says is truly the best way to live life, what would change? Like, like if, I, if I truly believed that forgiving my enemies was the best way to live life. Why would I ever hold a grudge? If I truly believe that laying my life down for the sake of the people around me, if I truly believe that was the best way to live this life, then why would I ever be greedy? Why would I ever hoard my own money? Why would I ever cease to be generous? Why would I ever gossip? Why would I ever slander? Why would I ever live in disunity? Why would I ever think evil thoughts in my heart or in my mind? Why would I ever hope that something bad happens to another person? Why would I ever look at things on the computer that I shouldn't look at? Etc. 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 If we actually believed that what the Bible said was actually true. I think if we can be honest with ourselves, maybe we just don't think it's all that good. Like it was good enough for our salvation. Like it was good enough that we'd want to sign up because we don't want to go to hell. But actually that this stuff is the best way to live life, I think I'll check that at the door. Again, I'll be the person on the outskirts of the Sermon on the Mount who checks in when I like it and checks out when I don't. And again, that is not the option for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay. <clears throat> so... Verse 19, let's get some more evidence about whether or not and what we're doing with this law presently. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called last in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So a couple of warnings, all right. So whoever takes easy the least of these commandments, right? So the easiest, the, the, wow, the easiest ones, the ones that we would deem somewhat insignificant, if you, if you even just let those go, and, and you tell others that it's okay, one of the ones, and if, especially if you're new, you'll know, Anthony, I love hitting on this, okay? Um, but, but if you, when you talk the least of these insignificant sins, if you go to a restaurant, if you go to a fast food place, and you order a water, and you fill that with soda, 
That drives me insane. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Don't do that. That is sinful. You're a thief. And you're greedy. It's like a dollar. Do not steal, the Bible says. And yet we're like, ah, that's no big deal. I've seen people sit across the tables, Christians I know, and I'll watch from a distance before I go and scream. Not really. More of a gentle urging, right? And they'll be sitting there and they'll say, dude, what? Why'd you order a soda? Let's get a water. And I'm, I, I start fuming. And I think it's righteous. So the Bible tells me I can do that. No, no, if you don't care about the least of these things, that's not okay. We don't gauge sin. We don't gauge brokenness. We, we, we don't gauge what is right and wrong. The Bible does that for us, and we cannot just say, eh, I don't like that one, so this one's not that big a deal. I'm just going to pick and choose the value of the sins in my life. It doesn't work that way. No, no, if you commit the least of these commandments, and you tell others to do the same, last are you in the kingdom of heaven. And then vice versa. But if you obey even the least of these commandments, and you teach others to do the same, Great are you in the kingdom of heaven. This is, this is, again, this is Jesus to a bunch of disciples who I think, probably like most of us, I think, are like, I want to follow you. What does this look like? Probably full of optimism and hope. And man, Christ, what does this mean to be your follower? And he's like, look, you got to do it all. You got to stop just kind of skirting it and saying, oh, this isn't that big a deal. I can just make that judgment on my own. He's like, no, no, stop that. Why do you do that? Why, why, why do we act this way? Why, why are we so good? I just saw this clip this week. I love this idea, but why are we so good at like knowing and memorizing what the Bible says, but we're so bad at actually doing it? So we'll read it. We'll say, well, I know the Bible says that, eh, but I'm going to do something else. Now, if you apply this to any other context of your life, your relationships would be disastrous. If I did this with my wife, and oftentimes I do. I, Verity, are you here, sweetheart? No? Cool. <laughs> I'm going to confess less sin than I was going to. This is great. Um, if my wife constantly is like, so, so we've been married now for almost six years, and there's always things that since the beginning, she's like, hey, I, I'd really appreciate it if you didn't do that. I.e., like, don't put your towel on the floor, right? No shoes on the couch. Keep the dog off the bed. These are things that I think are seemingly insignificant. Who cares? She really has this big thing about germs, right? That everything is way dirtier. Or no, she says, like, oh, if, uh, if I pick something off the ground and eat it, and I will, I mean, if something could be sitting there since last night, I will probably still eat it, right? And she says, that's disgusting. You don't know how gross it is. I say, no, no, no. You don't know how gross the rest of your life is. That's not any worse. And we go back and forth. Now, I bring these things up because they seem so absolutely insignificant. But if I'm, if I'm laying on my bed with the wet towel sitting next to me, with my shoes on because I just got ready for work, and I let my hairy, stinky dog lay next to me, and she walks in and says, what did I say about the dog and your shoes and the towel? And I say, oh yeah, you said don't do it. And then I don't do anything about it. What does that say about my love for my wife? What does that say about my respect for her opinion. It says, I don't care. 
It says that your opinion doesn't matter to me. It says that I'm smarter, I'm better, and what you think is not important to me. The least of these things. And that as Christians, I think we do this to God all the time. God, you don't really care about this. No, he's like, I told you I care about this. What does it say that continuously I do things that I know God says, this is not what I want for your life? I think it says I don't respect God as much as I think I do. I don't love him as much as I think I do. And his opinion in my life isn't as great as maybe I think it is. Right? So what do we do with this tension? What do we do with this reality? And here's where some good news comes in, which is, which is really good. Okay? If, I, if I was one of the disciples at this point, and I'm hearing what Christ is saying, I think I'm like slowly retreating. Like I didn't know this is what you were calling me into. But let's keep going. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that is an intense verse. I don't know if you understand the weight of this. Okay? If you can't be more righteous than the Pharisees, right? And the Pharisees at the time, again, they were the holy folks. And for Jesus to say anything that sounded flattering to them was a big deal because they were awful. Their hearts internally were bankrupt and corrupt, and they were doing things. They were the epitome of what Jesus said not to do in the previous two verses. And yet he's saying, but they did it to the T. They believed completely wrong things, and they did it for all the wrong motives, but they did it exactly how they believed it. So at least what they said was true equaled up to what their life looked like. He's like, you see those guys over there? Like, they're crazy. But at least they're honest. At least they have integrity. At least what they say they're going to do, they actually do. Even how messed up it is, he goes, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to be more righteous than that. This is where if I'm a disciple, I am running the other direction. Because this sounds terrifying. Because it was one thing when Moses was given the law in the Old Testament, and then Moses came to us and said, hey, these are the things you're supposed to do. And we said, okay. But there was a disconnect between many of the people of God and God and Yahweh, right? And so now you've got Jesus, God in the flesh, the prophet amongst prophets saying, do this or you can't get into the kingdom of heaven. I would be terrified. What what in the world would I do with that weight? And what do we do with that weight this morning? Like how how do we live in this constant tension of like we said in the beginning, there's there's something the Bible seems to call us to, and there seems to be a disconnect with the way we live that out. And how do we how do we hold that intention with with Jesus? And now, fortunately for us, we live in 2016, and so now we have the totality of God's revealed word through Scripture to us. We know where this story ends for Christ. Right? We know that he goes on to live the perfect life, to die the death we deserve, and be raised on the third day. Like We now know these things are true. I just can't imagine for the disciples who wanted to follow how hard and difficult this must have been initially. And all reports seem to say that everything that happened from this point on is people just stepped further in that were in this circle. And that's what I want for us. 
what, what I want for our church, what I want for my own life, is, is I, I, I want to step in, in, in the midst of stuff that just sounds like this. This is, this is so difficult. I want the faith, I want, I want my heart to be conformed to desire to want to step in and, and not be those who would just try and back out slowly, out the back of the room to say, yeah, the reality that I had to come to grips with years and years ago is, is just really asking myself, is God real? Is Jesus real? And do I believe the Bible tells the accurate depiction and story of those two characters? One character, Trinity, you get it. Does it? And if I think it does, then there is no choice anymore. The choice has already been made. And so now it's just obedience. The good news for us this morning is that the reason why we can step in is because Jesus already has before us, fully and perfectly. I want to land with a good bit of scripture here because this is always way better. Scripture is always way better than any words that a pastor could say to you. Some people see Jesus as taking the checklist of the Old Testament and tearing it up, saying, you know what, forget the checklist. Now it's just me. And that's not what he says. Now see, what he did is he took that checklist and he checked every single check mark on your behalf and every single one on mine, for me as well. And he takes that checklist and he fulfills the law perfectly. He fulfills the story perfectly. He fulfills every prophecy perfectly. Everything that you read in the Bible is all intended to always point to Jesus. So when we think through the Old Testament law, we think through there was a, a moral law given to the people. There was a, a ceremonial law given to the people, a way to cleanse yourself. There was a sacrifice that must be given to atone for the sins. Let's read some scripture about the life of Christ. Morally, 2 Corinthians 5.21 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So morally, right, in every way that we failed to, to abide by the law of God, he fulfills perfectly. He knew no sin, so he became sin on your behalf. This is for the world. Pay attention. Listen, this is for you. He became sin. All the brokenness, all the pain, all the terrible decisions that you have made, will make today, and will make for the rest of your life. He became on your behalf on the cross. Sacrificially, Jesus, Isaiah 53, 4 through 5 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our, our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his stripes we are healed. So the sacrifice that the Old Testament law needed, right, to atone for the sins of the people of God, Jesus became once and for all for you and for me and for all of creation. So he goes, he dies in place of you. His sacrifice is what gives us the freedom to be able to try and pursue him today. And lastly, ceremonially, how are we cleansed? Jesus, Hebrews 10, 19-24. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, 
with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, they cleanse you from all iniquity. So all the ceremonial cleaning and washing and things that had to be done to keep the Old Testament Israelites clean before God is now all done in Jesus. You are now clothed in his blood, in his righteousness. Your sin is not seen. I was meeting with a guy just this last week who's struggling with, with a good amount of Uh, anxiety and depression and and sin and brokenness and hurt and pain in his life right now. And he cannot get past this idea that for some reason God would still love him. Like, how, how is it that I could be dealing with all this and God, who is perfect, would see me and still see beauty? And the answer is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Over and over and over. It's not because you've done better today. It's not because you looked at your life and you're like, I'm a little bit better of a Christian today than I was yesterday. That's not the way this works. It's all about the sacrifice in the blood of Christ. Amen. So now, Christian, you're not bound to the law. You're just bound to Jesus. You're not bound to the law. You're bound to Christ. And Christ has said some really heavy stuff throughout his time on this earth. To be exact, 1,050 commandments in the New Testament. 800 of those can be categorized into different categories. So 613 from the Old Testament were like, dang, that's crazy, that's, that's heavy. In the New Testament, at least 800, 1,050 depending on how you break it down. Jesus does not lower the bar for the church in the New Testament. He raises it. He tells us, hey, no, no, I want you to live the same life that I lived. Or, or I, I love people even to the point of my own death, my own sacrifice, my own laying down of my desire, my will, my hope, my future, that others might flourish. Now hear me, oftentimes I feel like I need to give this disclaimer. This does not mean you cannot have your own desires, your will, your things that you love to do because oftentimes God has gifted you in specific areas where those two things will be in congruence. But the answer and the question we always have to ask ourselves is if you think one thing but God's saying the other, who do you go with? Do you act like this gal in college who said, you know what, I think I know better. And then what the car sees, or or do we get that thing fixed? Do we we be honest with ourselves and we allow our hearts to be exposed, which I know is never easy, and say, God, maybe this means something. Maybe, Maybe I am supposed to step into what you have for me and and stop either lingering on the outside, kind of going back and forth, or the other direction, which is you're here and you're just going to try and get out as soon as you can because now you have freedom. What's true for us? Okay. Final scripture I leave you with, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you 
hear me, and cause you to walk in my statutes and obey my rules. Okay. All the way back to the beginning. John 14, he who has my commands and loves me and obeys me, he is the one who loves me. He who has my commands and obeys me, he is the one who loves me. The brilliance of the gospel, the good news for us this morning is in the midst of this weight and this heaviness and this call that the Bible says, man, it has a lot to say about how we live our lives. The good news is that God, in, from the very beginning, part of his rescue plan was to give you a new heart and to put himself inside of you. So, so you, 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 you and I, let's say, if you're here and you love Jesus, you're not just you anymore. We, we still think we're, I still think and act like I'm old Vince and not the Vince that God came in, saved, redeemed, gave, gave a new heart to and put his own spirit within 15 years ago. Hear me, Christian, you are new. You have new hearts and you have the God of the universe inside of you. He's not a puppet master. He's not gonna move your mouth for you. But he is constantly going to call you to conform to his rules. I think we just need to actually believe that his rules are the best thing in life. But praise God for the gospel. Because we can leave here hopeful because he's part of this equation. He's not just that kind of disengaged parent who just lobs rules at their children. No, he's intimately involved even to the point where he came and lived it perfectly himself. So as we respond this morning, man, I think we need to sing, we need to celebrate, we need to worship what he has done. And gosh, when we leave, this needs to confront the way that we live this life outside this place. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you because um, man, we, just, we just would blow this unless you were like doing your thing. God, I confess just the many ways that I doubt your goodness, the many ways I doubt, um, Lord, what you've done, what you've accomplished, not just on a macro level, but in my own heart. God, I pray that you would Call me and call all of us as a church to live in light of this new identity you've given us, in light of this, these new set of desires that come from this new heart you've given us. God, I pray that you would constantly remind us that, that we are yours, that you indwell us, that we are not just kind of roaming this thing, doing our best by ourselves, but rather you are with us. You gave us the church to live this out together. And so, Lord, I guess I just plead with you this morning that you would make us more like you. God, that we would, man, we would have your commands, and, and God, in the places we don't even know what you say, that we'd seek that out, that we'd listen, that we'd ask good questions. And God, as we learn about what you would call us to, God, there would be no choice anymore, because again, Lord, you've made the choice for us, and you've brought us into your family. And so, God, I pray that we would just be obedient. I pray that we would just love you because we know to love you just means to do what you tell us to do. 
in the areas where we think that what you, what you think about us in this world are just not true. God, I pray, God, you would just pull off those blinders, that deception, that we'd see you clearly, your desire for this world clearly. We join with men and women around the world, specifically within our country, as we lament the brokenness of this day, remembering the lives lost, and also, God, the beauty of what it meant to see these many images of Christ, people laying their life down to save others. Pray today would be a day of redemption and restoration, of hope that's instilled in you, and of a constant reminder that there is a good, faithful, and amazing God who is on mission for the hearts and lives of every man, woman, and child in this world. I pray for our church this morning, Lord, that you continue to allow us to be part of it. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we love you for the gospel, for your goodness, and for just being here with us this morning. In your name we pray.